Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at historical locations that are reportedly haunted. To understand the hauntings, one must first look at the history behind them, because history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together and learn some cool historical facts along the way. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and thank you all so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to my show. Today we will be talking about the hauntings of the abandoned Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Before we get started, I have an update about Spotify. If you had had problems getting my newest episodes on the Spotify app, I have great news for you. A listener named Raul found out that Spotify had made a new page for my podcast that allowed all of my newest episodes to be available. Spotify never told me about this change, even though I had been previously emailing them for months. So thank you so much, Raul, for letting me know because I had completely given up on them. So if you would like to get back to listening on the Spotify app, I have posted a link to the new page on my Facebook page, and I have posted a link to it on the Historically Haunted group page, and I have a link to both of these down below. I have also found a way to make a new website for the podcast. I was paying hundreds of dollars for a Wix website, and then the pandemic hit, and I had to take it all down. because I couldn't afford the big yearly payout anymore. But I was able to find a free way to make a website page. I just paid a small one-time-a-year fee of around 20 bucks to have my own custom URL. While it is basic, I think it's cute. It shows my personality off pretty well, and it has the information you need to know about the show, and I think it's much easier to use. If you go to historicallyhaunted.website slash haunt, you can find the link to my new Spotify page there as well. Just go to the website, scroll all the way down to the bottom page, and click on the Spotify logo, and it will take you directly to the updated Historically Haunted page. I will also have a link to this new website page down below. I have been getting so many wonderful comments and emails from everyone telling me that they are really enjoying the show. I work really hard on each episode to improve the quality of the show, so it means a lot to know that all the hard work I put into this podcast is working. So thank you to everyone who has ever sent me an email or wrote a nice comment. Just a life update really quick. My grandfather is finally home and I am 100% vaccinated. So I have finally been able to go over to see him and give him a huge hug. He is doing a lot better now that he is in his own home. Thank you all so much for the kind words of support. I also found out something cool that I wanted to share really quick. My dad has been staying over at my grandfather's house to help him day and night. And my dad had my grandfather listen to the Queen Mary episode. And my grandpa told me that he got to see the Queen Mary docked in New York City harbor during World War II. My grandfather served in the United States Navy and he remembers seeing her painted all gray. So I thought that was really cool. I wish I would have known that before I made the episode, but he was hard to get in contact with because he was in the nursing home. But I thought that was really cool and I just had to share that with you guys really quick. I just wanted to take a moment to thank my newest Patreons, Jasmine, Marin, Dree7, and I'm pretty sure that's a username, and Jazz. Thank you so much, everyone. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon member, I have a link to that down below, but no pressure at all. I will still be making my normal episodes for free for everyone. I also have a new iTunes review from Ever Forever. So thank you so much for that kind review. 
Alright, that's it for this intro. I am so excited to get this episode started. Abandoned places fascinate me, and I am planning on branching out into more haunted abandoned places for my episodes. I am always looking for location suggestions, so if you have a haunted place that you would like me to check out, please email me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com, and I will add it to my listener's suggestion list. So, without further ado, let's get this episode started. Beginning, of course, with our monstrous moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and having encounters from beyond the stars. I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. Today's monstrous moment is the chupacabra. The chupacabra is a popular legendary creature that began in Latin American culture. El chupacabra is a Spanish name that loosely translates to the goat sucker. The reason it is called the goat sucker is because of the creature's reputation for attacking and then drinking the blood of livestock but its favorite meal seems to be goat blood. You will know if it's a chupacabra attack because it leaves behind two or sometimes three puncture wounds in the animal and the animals will be completely drained of blood. The chupacabra is described in two and sometimes even three different ways, which has led some cryptozoologists to think that there might be different types of chupacabra. One description is that it is the shape of a medium-sized dog that has no hair with alien-like features. This type of chupacabra has been called blue dogs. Another description is much larger and more of the size of a small bear with reptilian-like features, including a row of spines from the neck to the base of its tail. A more obscure version of the chupacabra stands more like a kangaroo, has a scaly spine with bat-like wings. Sightings of the chupacabra have been reported in Mexico, Puerto Rico, and in the southwestern parts of the United States. The first reported attack came from Puerto Rico in 1995. During the month of March, eight sheep were found completely drained of blood. Each sheep was reported to have puncture wounds found in the animal's chest. The local authorities didn't know what to make of these strange markings or the fact that the animals were completely drained of blood. But in the end, they said that the killings were due to a fox. But I don't see a small fox taking down a sheep especially not sucking all of its blood out. But that's all the authorities could come up with as an explanation. Only a few months later, in August, 150 farm animals were killed in the town of Conavis in Puerto Rico. And I probably said that name wrong, so sorry about that. All of the animals found had the same strange puncture wounds and were drained of blood. While these were the first attacks to be reported to authorities, it's important to remember that the chupacabra has been known for a long time in Latin cultures. Strange attacks that match the chupacabra have been found throughout history, but they never really got officially called a chupacabra attack. In 1975, there were similar killings found in the small town of Mocha in Puerto Rico. Recently, people have caught and sometimes killed animals that they thought were chupacabras. But for the most part, animals that were thought to be chupacabras were found out to be nothing more than coyotes with mange. Chupacabra sightings have increased over the last few years. Some people blame the internet for its sudden popularity boom. But this does not explain how people are finding animals drained of blood. I have never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. 
Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, one in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. Mercer County, West Virginia is home to an old abandoned amusement park. If you were to visit today, you would see a rusty Ferris wheel and an old swing ride with wooden seats and rusted chains. There is even an old abandoned ticket booth. This park is known as the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, located about five miles from the county seat of Princeton. This abandoned amusement park is located on land considered to be cursed by locals and extremely haunted by paranormal investigators. Let's get into the history of the area to uncover why it was abandoned in 1966 and is now thought to be one of the most haunted places in the United States. Indigenous people of West Virginia have an interesting history. Remains of villages from the prehistoric mound builders culture have been found in the state. Mound builders were prehistoric people who built eastern mounds that were used for ceremonies, burials, and for homes. The mounds had a variety of shapes. Some were like flat top pyramids or platform mounds. Others were cone shaped. The mounds were part of the villages. Mounds that survived in West Virginia are located near Moundsville, South Charleston, and Romney. Moundsville is named for the conical-type Grave Creek Mound. It now stands 62 feet high and is 240 feet in diameter, making it the largest conical burial mound in the United States. Archaeological evidence shows that the villages used a trade system and made things from cold-worked copper. It is believed that the mound was built between 250 and 150 BCE by the Adena culture. By 1600 AD, the indigenous people were organized into tribes. They were part of the larger northeastern woodlands culture. Some of the tribes of West Virginia include the Cherokee, the Iroquois, and the Shawnee. A large impact on the Native Americans, of course, was the colonization of the land by the British. In the 1700s and early 1800s, West Virginia was part of the Virginia colony. The first English settlers to come to Mercer County were Mitchell Clay, his wife Phoebe, and their 14 children, who arrived in 1773. 880 acres had been granted to Mitchell by the governor of the Virginia colony. His farm was located on the same land that the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park was later built. Things seemed to be going well until one day in 1781. While Mitchell was out hunting, members of the nearby Shawnee tribe killed two clay children, Bartley and Tabitha. Another child, Ezekiel, was kidnapped. 
He was taken to a Shawnee Indian village in Ohio and later burned at the stake. When Mitchell came home and found out what had happened, he rounded up nearby settlers and set out after the Shawnee. They were too late to save Ezekiel. However, they did kill several of the Shawnee in revenge. Mitchell Clay sold his farm after this and left. Today, there is a Clay Family Memorial Park and Cemetery. The land overlooks the location of the slayings. There is also a statue of Mitchell and Phoebe called Agony in Stone. The statue is in the middle of a cross-shaped memorial, along with the memorials for each of the three children. Mercer County was created in 1837 by the General Assembly of Virginia by taking lands from Taswell and Giles County. Mercer County and the town of Princeton were named in honor of General Hugh Mercer, who was killed in the Battle of Princeton during the American Revolutionary War in 1777. Princeton was chosen as the county seat at this time. West Virginia was actually a part of Virginia until the Civil War. The state of Virginia voted to secede from the United States, but the people living in the western region did not agree. Instead, they organized to create their own state to support the Union and named it West Virginia. They were officially given statehood by Congress on June 20, 1863. During the Civil War, both the Union and Confederate armies were trying to win control of West Virginia. There were small battles in and around Princeton during the month of May of 1862. The Confederate commander, Captain Walter Jennifer, ordered the town of Princeton to be burned to keep the Union Army from getting supplies. Many of the residents burned their own homes and left the area. Few structures survived. Then on May 17th, there was the Battle of Pigeon Roost. The night of May 16th, Confederate troops spread out on a ridge above the town. The next morning, Union troops were ambushed as they approached Princeton. 23 Union soldiers were killed and 38 wounded, while only three Confederate soldiers died. The Union soldiers headed north and gave up on the plan to take control of the railroad at Dublin, Virginia. Sometime later, the Union Army did gain control of the Princeton area and used McNutt House as its headquarters and a hospital. This was the only structure that survived the fire. Since the people of Princeton and Mercer County supported the Confederacy, the county was not included in the new state of West Virginia at first. Eventually, the town was rebuilt during the Reconstruction period, and then it was included in the new state. The nearby Pocahontas coal field began in 1883. Coal mining and the railroads were important to the economy of the country, but most of the main coal fields and railroad activity started in other towns like Bluefield, which was 10 miles northeast of Princeton. Bluefield was chosen as the headquarters for its Pocahontas Division in 1887 because the Norfolk and Western Railway already had a rail line there. Several railroad companies carried coal from West Virginia to various parts of the eastern United States. Coal was sent to the Great Lakes area and to Baltimore, Maryland. From Baltimore, it was put onto steamships and delivered to New York City and New England. A new railroad company, the Virginia Railway, or VGN for short, started building a railroad through the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia. They chose Roanoke, Virginia as their headquarters for the lines east from there, and Princeton was chosen to be the headquarters for the lines west of Roanoke, called the New River Division. The town was home to VGN's major shops and train yard. VGN was a successful company and was nicknamed the richest little railroad in the world. The largest number of employees for VGN worked in Princeton. 
They began building railroad cars and shops in the 1930s. Now that you have a good overview of the land surrounding Lake Shawnee property, let's go back to the actual property because as far as the Lake Shawnee property goes, very little has been recorded about the ownership and usage of the land since the Clay family left in the late 1700s. But in 1926, a man named Connolly T. Snydow purchased the land. He chose to turn part of the abandoned land into an amusement park. This park was a popular spot for coal miners and their families during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Due to some tragic deaths that I will explain later, the park closed in 1966 and remained abandoned and left to decay until the 1980s. That's when a businessman named Graylord White bought the land with plans to reopen the park. As soon as construction started on a new bog pit in 1988, bones and Native American artifacts were discovered. It turned out that the land was an ancient Native American burial ground that long predated the Clay family. It was determined that most of the skeletons were of children. After this discovery, White decided to let the amusement park rust over rather than disturb the sacred ground. He now gives historical and paranormal tours of the property because paranormal investigators often come to Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, which helped the park earn a reputation for being a haunted spot. The Travel Channel has named it one of the most terrifying places in America. This land has been scarred with tragedy ever since settlers like the Clay family moved to the land in the 1700s. Today, this abandoned amusement park is said to be one of the most haunted places in the United States. Let's take a second to look at some other tragedies that have happened on the property. First off, I wanted to explain a bit more about the park so you can get a feel for what this place was like back in its heyday. Amusement parks of the 1920s are not what amusement parks are like today. Many amusement parks of the past did not have many rides, unlike modern-day Disneyland or Six Flags. Amusement parks back then were more like a resort, created for everyone to have fun and a relaxing time. Instead of big coasters and rides, this amusement park only had two actual rides on the property, the Ferris wheel and the swings. Other amusements were a man-made swimming pool, complete with a water slide, a pond that allowed for canoeing and paddleboarding, and a fishing hole. It also had a bathhouse that doubled as a dance hall, a restaurant, and even a speakeasy. When Connolly Snydow opened the park, his intentions were to create a getaway for the local coal miners and their families. His dream was soon plagued by tragedies. Ever since the opening of the park, it's as if the land itself does not want anyone to live on it. From bizarre accidents to strange feelings, this property has made its stance very clear. It does not want to be disturbed. The first important thing to remember is that the land itself is a sacred Native American burial ground. It is estimated that there are 3,000 bodies buried on the property. And when they excavated just one small area, they found 21 bodies, 13 of which were children. 
This led some historians to believe that there might be a majority of children bodies buried on the property. As to why, they are not quite sure. When I was doing some research, I ran across some theories that there might have been a sickness that wiped out a majority of children in the area at the time, but we will never know for sure. One thing they do know is that the land was supposed to be sacred and never be disturbed. It makes sense as to why the Clay family was attacked for living on the land. When the three Clay children were killed in 1781, the local indigenous people were outraged that they were living and farming on their sacred land. Now, I'm not saying anyone is ever in the right to kill anybody else for any reason, but to give you a quick parallel, could you imagine if one day if they announced that some rich guy had suddenly bought up all of Arlington National Cemetery and decided to turn it into a housing development, not get rid of the bodies, ruin all the tombstones, and just degrade the land? Well, that kind of anger is exactly how the Shawnee felt about the Clay family living on their property. Now again, I'm not saying it warrants them killing them, I can just understand where the rage came from. While the tribe took matters into their own hands in the 1700s, it seemed like the land itself might also be trying to get people off of it and to respect what is buried underneath. That's just something to keep in the back of your head as we talk about the other strange tragedies that have happened ever since the land opened as a park in 1926. Only a year after Snyder opened his park, tragedy struck his own family when his young daughter was crushed to death in the elevator inside of the bathhouse. In 1927, his daughter ran down the hallway of the main floor to try to catch the elevator that was going up to the upper floor. She grabbed onto the bottom of it and tried to pull herself inside the cart. She didn't make it in time and the elevator crushed her between the floor of the cart and the top of the door. Remember that elevators of the 1920s did not have any safety features or doors that closed automatically. This was a devastating loss to the Snydo family, but it was not the last death to plague the property. In May of 1935, a 25-year-old man named James Kraft Bletcher killed his 19-year-old girlfriend, Myrtle Taylor, on the road right alongside of the property. James became jealous of Myrtle, who was seeing other men. On May 11th, James saw Myrtle eating dinner with another man at a restaurant. James went inside the restaurant, started an argument with her, and then forced Myrtle into his car. He drove her to a road near the edge of Lake Shawnee Amusement Park and shot her in the head twice. After he saw what he had done, he rushed her to the hospital where she then passed away. James pled innocent due to temporary insanity, but he was found guilty and was sent to prison for the murder of Myrtle. Something to note about James was that his family used to own the Lake Shawnee property in the early 1900s. Then there were more accidents at the park. Now, before I go any further, the ones I just had talked about are documented, but the ones I'm going to talk about now, not all of them are documented, so I couldn't find 100% proof if these happened, but I did the best I could. There was a lot of discrepancy on what time these happened, when they happened. Every article had a different story. So some of these could just be urban legends. So something to just keep in the back of your head as I go through this list. So supposedly a little girl was tragically killed in a freak accident. She was on the swing ride while a delivery truck was dropping off soda at the concession stand nearby. As the swing ride turned on, the swing started to swing outwards further and further away from the center of the ride. The delivery truck driver did not notice this and he backed his truck into the path of the outer row of swings. A girl that was on the swings collided with the back end of the delivery truck, killing her instantly. In 1961, a six-year-old boy named Wayne jumped into the pool unsupervised and drowned. He was not found until hours later when somebody kicked his body as it was submerged at the bottom of the pool. 
Another accident happened in 1966 when a nine-year-old boy went missing at the park. He was supposed to be picked up by his mother, and when he did not come out to greet her at the entrance, she thought he had walked home or gotten a ride from somebody else. She went home and could not find him, so she called the local authorities. A search team was sent out in the wooded area near Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. It wasn't until the sun was setting that a man saw a shadow at the bottom of the pool. It was sadly the boy who had his arm caught in the drain pipe. They believed that he had been under the water for several hours before he was found. There are also rumors of two drownings that happened in the pond. One was of a young boy who fell overboard and drowned while his family was out on a paddle boat. Another little boy drowned after his canoe flipped over in the middle of the pond. While some of these supposed deaths cannot be verified, the land is still supposedly extremely haunted. Now it's time to talk about some of the creepy claims of Lake Shawnee Amusement Park because as a lot of investigators have said, once the sun goes down, the atmosphere changes drastically. One thing that everyone says about this property is that there is an extremely creepy vibe and the feeling of never being alone. I have run into that countless times in articles and shows about this park. People have said that once you step foot on the property, there is something unsettling about the area and there's just something not quite right about the space, especially at night. People have said that it feels like there are hundreds of eyes on you at all times. Another frequent claim is shadow figures. Shadow figures have been seen all over the property day and night. Shadows darting behind old farming equipment and the remains of old theme park rides. Many paranormal investigators and people who have worked on the property have claimed to have seen shadow figures looking directly at them or they see them dart past out of the corner of their eye. People that have walked out to the burial ground marker have reportedly felt a pressure on their shoulders. At night, it's as if the spirits are all around you, watching you from the tree line. It is normal for paranormal investigators to leave an offering at the grave marker to let the entities know what you're doing and that you're there to be respectful. Another common occurrence is when people are walking down the main road of the property, they hear the sound of footsteps walking closely behind them. Once people stop and look back, the sound stops and there's no one there. This also happens when people are walking through tall grass areas on the property. Many believe that they are the spirits of Native Americans who are buried on the property. People also reported feeling like they had been grabbed from behind. Some have had their hair and clothing tugged on, almost as if it's a child trying to get your attention. There is also a story of a worker who claimed that he once got pushed so hard out of the old ticket booth that he fell flat on his back. When he looked up, there was no one there. There's also a story of somebody getting locked inside of the ticket booth, even though the door doesn't have a lock on it. There have also been sightings of an apparition of a man walking down the main road of the property. Workers and even some ghost hunters have said that they saw a man walking down the road only to vanish into thin air. Another strange sighting is that of an apparition of a seven foot tall shadow figure dressed in either robes or some kind of a cloak. He likes to stand at the edge of the property and just watch. Mediums who have been to the area say that they don't think it's necessarily evil. He just likes to sit there and see what's going on. Some have even picked up a vibe that it is some kind of ancient entity that might actually just be trying to help people. 
Another apparition that has been seen is a Native American warrior. People think that he is a warrior because he is dressed in a ceremonial headdress and when some people see him, his apparition is accompanied with the sound of chanting and drums before he and the sound fades away. The disembodied sound of chanting, voices, and the pounding of drums have been heard day and night. Throughout history, the main thing that this property has on it is children. Mostly children are buried here. The Clay family children were killed here. Mostly children died in the amusement park. So it shouldn't come as much of a shock to find out that this land is mostly haunted by children's spirits. And I think that's one of the main contributing factors as to why people find this place so terrifying. Personally, the ghosts of children freak me out. I know that if I was at an abandoned amusement park in the middle of the night and I heard a child giggle behind me, I would probably run back to my car, leave the property, and never come back. And the most interactive spirits on the property are children ghosts. So over by the swings, you will find toys left behind by tour groups for the little girl that supposedly died on the swings ride. She has been seen in a pink dress, but the dress also has something disturbing on it, her blood. She has been seen playing on the nearby swings. People have also said to hear the sound of giggling and talking in the distance. The TV show Portals to Hell did an episode here just a few months ago, and they caught an interesting interaction near the swings ride. First off, during their walkthrough of the property the day before, they talked to a witness who once worked at the park. He said one day he and his girlfriend were out walking the grounds and he and his girlfriend watched as a random woman holding a little girl's hand appeared out of nowhere. The little girl and woman didn't pay them any attention, but they walked to the swing set. The couple also followed them. As the couple was kind of chasing after them, they noticed that the swings began to move. When they walked over to the swings to get a better look, they suddenly realized that there was no one around, but two of the swings were moving on their own. And this story was not the only story I came across of people claiming to see the swings moving on their own. When Portals to Hell did their night investigation, they went over to the swings ride. Jack and fellow investigator Heather turned on their REM pod to begin a session, and right away the REM pod started going crazy, and it was acting really strange. They shut it off and brought out another one to make sure it was not just their equipment acting up, and the other one did the exact same thing. Then it eventually stopped. Thinking they were talking to the little girl who haunts the swings ride, they said that they would leave a toy if she could turn on the REM pod again. The REM pod went on, so they left the toy. Then Jack blew up a balloon and he started to bounce it around and let it fall to the ground and he told the girl to play with him. The balloon popped and then the REM pod went off like crazy immediately afterward. The weirdest part about this was the way the balloon popped. The balloon fell so lightly to the ground and then it popped and then the REM pod started going crazy again. So that was just the weird part about this. He blew up another balloon and then the energy just died, almost as if something was just passing through. Later that night, they went to the burial ground marker and left an offering of tobacco. They tried to communicate with anything that might be there. But when Heather asked the question, what do you think of us being on your land? A pack of coyotes started to howl not very far off. Now I know that's just what coyotes do, and it was probably just a coincidence, but coyotes are very important to Native American cultures, and they're very spiritual. And I just thought it was really kind of creepy that right after you ask the question like that, that a random pack of coyotes just starts going nuts. And then they didn't do it again for the rest of the night. It definitely felt like a message that they were not happy with it. Mediums who have been to the property have also picked up on the park not necessarily having an evil energy. It's more like a quiet resentment toward the people that are now on 
on the land. The Ferris wheel is also reportedly haunted. People have said to see an apparition of a young boy peeking out over the bucket with the number 10 on it. No one knows who this boy is. Other child apparitions have been seen around the property. Some have even said to see the horrifying image of children sitting on rides silently looking at you as if they're waiting for you to start up the ride. Now, if that does not sound like it's something out of a horror movie, I don't know what does. Many locals even talk about the land being cursed because of what has happened to not only the Clay family, but the other children that have died on the property as well. I even ran into people that think they have seen apparitions of the three Clay children who are still buried on the property. Whatever the reason for the land being so haunted, I do feel like this property is really creepy. I think that a place does not have to have evil paranormal activity to still be thought of as being a terrifying place to visit. So what do you think? Are you brave enough to go hang out with a bunch of children's spirits from different time periods on a cursed property? I don't think I am because there's something about ghostly children that really freaks me out. But if you're brave enough, let me know how it goes. My biggest advice would be to bring some sage with you and sage off at the edge of the property. You don't want to bring one of these kids home with you. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of The Hauntings Found at Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. I'm sorry this episode was so short, everyone. There's just not that much history to talk about about the land, and the hauntings were mostly the thing that took up the most time. The hauntings are still really cool, though. That's why I wanted to make this episode. I'm going to be releasing a bonus episode either today or tomorrow, so keep an eye out for that. The bonus episode is usually for my Patreons, but I feel like since this episode only came out to be about 30 minutes, I'm going to release another short episode so that way you guys can get a little more this week. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I have a link to my new website page, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, everything is down below in the show notes. Also make sure to check out my show notes for all the sources for all the history and the hauntings that I found. I always make sure to cite my sources. So again, thank you all so much for listening. I hope everybody has a safe and healthy next couple of weeks until I'll be back here again. Because I am 100% vaccinated, I can start traveling again. So this summer, I'm going on a couple of family vacations. I cannot wait to go. But don't worry, I will still be here to make episodes for you during the summer months. And if you guys can believe it, we only have four months until October. So you better believe it that I'm already starting to do some research and write some things down for Halloween because this year's Halloween is going to be awesome. I have to make up for the fact that I didn't even celebrate my favorite holiday last year because of the pandemic. And I've got a couple of really cool locations that people have suggested, but I've been holding back on them because I wanted to do them in October. Some of you guys have requested some really great stuff and I thought they would be perfect for the Halloween season. So again, thank you all so much for hanging out with me and learning some cool historical facts and learning about some haunted places. I hope that you guys stay healthy and safe and I'll see you guys back here again soon. Bye everybody. Thank you.